Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast. Well, why do I even say this intro? Because like, obviously in the music, <laughs> I explain, I already told you what, what you're listening to. <laughs> Maybe I should cut that part off. Anyways, this is your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everyone? Austin, I got some OVO tickets, man. So for those who don't know, <laughs> we just filmed the podcast and I had the OVO tickets on the side, um, like in Ticketmaster. And my mom had like five computers running as well at work, trying to get the tickets, but it's just Ticketmaster is scalping their own tickets. How fucking crazy is that? <laughs> Sold out. I mean, Ticketmaster is like scalping their tickets, but yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm very sad. <laughs> thanks for the, thanks for the kick in the nuts, bud. Yeah, Austin disappeared mid-podcast for like two minutes, just like, <laughs> what the hell are you doing? <laughs> man, you know, like, I, I gotta, I gotta. Uh, anyways, man, how's how's everything with you? You start off. Um, it's going good, man. The mortgage uh, the mortgage world, obviously, we, everyone, we had the interest rate hike. I don't even want to talk too much about it because I'm so tired about talking about it, but um, we had the 1% hike. Talk okay, shit, man. honestly, the only, the only significance... I mean, sure, variable rates have gone up. Fixed rates haven't gone up really, right? Um, but there was a significance of the stress test changing, right? Because now we always have to stress test at... Um, so basically before, if you were getting a fixed rate mortgage, your buying power was automatically quite a bit lower than if you were getting a variable rate mortgage, right? Because stress test is always given a contract rate plus 2% or 5.25. And so long story short, everyone basically had a drop in borrowing power of probably about like, five to 10%, uh, kind of depending on the overall application. But mm -hmm. as a result, had a crazy inflow of deals that we had to get submitted before Wednesday. So I've just been kind of exhausted since then and just kind of like chilling out. Uh, like Wednesday, I know you were messaging me a bunch of shit and I was like, nah, just not today. <laughs> I'm just not dealing with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's definitely going to leave an impact on prices. Do you agree? Yeah, 100%. Here's the reality, right? Wages have not gone up like that much relative to a, the cost of inflation and the, the cost of living B also like the interest rate increases. It's not all being offset by an increase in wages, like what people would expect, right. Or, or not what people would expect, but what people would hope for. Right. Um, people can still afford a lot and people are still earning good money in today's world, like wages and like job growth and like, un, like unemployment stats, all that stuff is still really positive, but companies so far have not been increasing their wages that drastically relative yep. to cost of living, right? So people's yep. overall borrowing capacity is just going down. Exactly, exactly. No, I totally agree with you. And uh, I mean, one thing to point out is, is that like, as you were mentioning inflation, inflation increasing at such a rapid pace, like in the States, it was, mm -hmm. I think it was 9.1 or 9.2% is, is, yeah. is, is what they announced higher than their estimate. I think it was 8.8%, which is still like extraordinarily high. Keep in mind when you're underwriting these mortgages at the bank initially, yes, you're underwriting for a higher interest rate, but you're not underwriting with the fact, assuming the cost of living is going to increase 10% year over year, right? So now all of a sudden, if your salaries don't increase significantly, um, your expenses will increase dramatically. If you're on variable, for example, um, like an open sort of like change, what, what do they call that mechanism where the mortgage payment changes on variable? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. It's basically if you don't have a static mortgage and you have a true variable, like yeah. just, yeah, yeah. That, that changes along with your other costs, uh, increasing as well. Obviously that's yeah. gonna, that's gonna tighten a lot of households, uh, affordability to spend on discretionary goods and services. Right. And, um, just generally speaking, the less your, your purchasing power is, um, the less you can afford, and that's going to have a downward impact on, on housing. So we've been also noticing a crazy supply uh, of properties mm. on the market. Obviously, the buyer pool has dried up quite drastically as well, um, both on the wholesaling side and on the MLS. How has been impacting your analysis um, side of things? My, are you looking to buy? Are you looking to sell, refinance? Like, what's your strategy? I feel like I'm interviewing you. <laughs> I'm, I'm always very like hesitant to talk about this stuff so publicly because people will ask a million questions. And ultimately, I think what's important is that like you guys, if you guys are even like debating getting into the market, that you have some kind of clear definitive guidelines for yourself, right? Like I'll enter back into the market when, for example, price per unit hits this, right? Or cash on cash return hits this or ROI gets to whatever, right? And once it hits that metric, start making offers. It's very simple, right? Here, here's the thing is, is that like, it's more of a, how do you underwrite these deals? Cause I can underwrite anything to hit these metrics, but like the fact yeah, of the matter fair. is, is the conserve, it, it all comes down to personal, I'm not going to say personal preference, but like how conservative you are in underwriting ultimately, because really you're the person who can make or break a deal based on how you're underwriting a lot of the times. Yeah. I'll have like my bull case scenario and I'll have my best case scenario. They're just the two scenarios. Now, not overly complicating this, right? Bull case is uh, you assume you don't negotiate any vacancies with the tenants that are already there, right? Um, so you kind of keep them there as is. You assume market rents on the units after renovation if they're vacant, right? Um, interest rate wise, I'm running it now at, about 6%, 5.5, sometimes kind of depends on the deal, right? Uh, depends on my mood and depends on what's in the news that day, right? Um, but somewhere between 5.5 and 6. Previously, I was running it at 5 to 5.5. So it just kind of bumped it up another 0.5. Expense wise, none of that stuff is really changing. I haven't really factored in like inflation as much as maybe we should. Part of which I think will be offset by the increase in rents, right? Like increase in supply costs, like utilities, like maintenance, like all that stuff. That'll be offset by increasing rents, probably. I don't necessarily Do you think. think so? I don't necessarily think the increase in interest rate is going to be offset by increasing rents. I don't think rents would go up mm -hmm. that fast. Right. Um, that and also rents is more sensitive to actual salaries than, than I would imagine housing prices, housing prices. You have some of the wealthy buying up renters. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think you see a tremendous amount of wealthy people renting. Yeah. Some, some definitely do, but uh, that's definitely more sensitive and capped. And with the cost of everything else going up, there's only so much that you can charge for rent before people are going to start missing payments, or there's just going to be a natural sort of like, it's not going to surpass this because people aren't making more than that. I'm surprised by how high rents are going, right? Like even when me and my wife lived downtown, we were paying, I think it was like 2,700 or something like that. Um, per month. And I thought that was fucking an arm and a leg. Okay. And now the same two bedroom, 3,100. Yeah. Yeah. Two bedroom, two, 31, 3,300, somewhere in that ballpark. Like to me, it seems, and these weren't, it wasn't even like that nice of a building. It was like an average building. Right. Yeah. So to me, it sounds ridiculous. Like I, I think we were decent income earners and, and to be paying that much in rents is absolutely ridiculous. And at what point, this is like my overall theory on real estate is at what point do people migrate towards lower cost of living cities? Right. If it's going to cost me $3,300 a month in Toronto. Um, and as a CA, for example, I think I was like, call it, let's assume I was earning like a hundred grand. Um, if I could go to just for example, say like London and earn like 90 grand and pay like half of that in rent, fuck it. I'm out. Right. Or like <laughs> at what point does the government get involved? Because honestly, real estate's not a free market. 
Um, yeah. it, it's not right there. Every, <laughs> but there's always policy being implemented that impacts prices, rent, so on and so forth. So like, there's a lot, I, I, you can't project for those variables. You can't underwrite for them. So I don't think there's a significant point in trying to wrap your head around it, but just like have that in the background and understand that could be a possible risk for myself, like very similar to you. Uh, I guess we didn't really talk. I, I say similar to you, but you didn't touch on it, but we talked about this offline. Um, we're, we're looking for, for properties that we can rent out fairly quickly, right? We're not trying to take on a hundred, $200,000 rentals, unless obviously the margin is stupid. And what, but I mean, stupid is like a couple six figures margins, right? Cause we, we don't want to get our, ourselves in that sort of headache. Um, yeah. that's sort of risk, uh, especially in this market. Cause when it's realistically, when you're getting into those sort of renovations, you're kind of flipping the property to yourself, right? And if you can't flip it to yourself, that's a lot of money tied in. It also takes super long. It's just not our strategy. I think like, like conversions, for example, it never was, it's gonna it never take, was yeah. yeah, it never was. So it's going to take like eight to 12 months out to do a, a single family triplex conversion. You have no idea where asset values will be in 12 months, right? Like Especially no one now, knows. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You that's have the bullet case. Yeah. How I'm underwriting deals is, is that from the rent perspectives, we know what's happening with the rents. You can just check Facebook marketplace for comparables. I will not, some newer investors check CMHC data, but generally speaking, that's not very accurate, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not accurate at all. Cause a lot of the, all of that data is comprised of institutional investors that buy these apartment buildings who might have half the tenants still on old rent. Take a look at mom and pop investors like us and what we're charging, right? Which yeah. you can argue is the vast majority of, of uh, rental units available. So uh, Facebook marketplace is definitely the way to go. That's how I'm underwriting rents from an expense perspective. What are you using on interest rates? Cause I, I've been, I've been putting around six, 6.5%. Yeah, yeah, that's one that I was saying. It was uh, it's between five point five and six. It kind of depends on uh, on the residential side. On the re- just to yeah, yeah, residential, residential, yeah. like normal, like under four units. Um, it depends on kind of what's in the news that day. Almost for me, like if I'm at five point five, it's because I think maybe there's only one more rate hike this year. If I'm at six, and I'm kind of assuming that there's going to be at least two. Everyone has to have their own like assumptions and forecasts on this. And as much as you want to just not be an economist in this market, you really have to kind of formulate that opinion. Yeah, because ultimately you need to convince yourself that it's a good deal. Right. And like what numbers do you need to put in there to convince yourself it's a good deal? And if you need to be a bit more conservative, yes, you're going to miss out on a lot more deals, but like it's, it's more so peace of mind. Right. But you got to balance that being able to take action and, uh, and your conservatism. And also last thing on the multifamily side, I find that underwriting these deals are extraordinarily difficult when it comes to refi time, because your interest rates on, on commercial are what, like now it's probably seven, 8%. Where's it going to end up at the end of the year? Who knows, right? Like maybe seven to 9%. Uh, what's well, already 7% now, like maybe 9%. That's probably, and, and I know every multifamily investor out there is going to come for me for saying this, but like that is probably where the biggest risk lies, right? Because- Well, in terms it, of like birth bur- strategy in the street. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Not not in terms of buy and hold, I guess, to be right. Um, but in terms of like, what, what will the future value be? There's one side, which is debt service, which is going to be largely tied to your interest rate. Right. And then there's the other side of what is what will the actual value of the building be, which is tied to cap rates, which is inherently related to interest rates. Right. Because if yeah. interest rates keep going up, cap rates are going to start naturally compressing. And so to me, it's kind of a double whammy, at least when yeah. you're doing a single family house as an example. You're being propped up by other first time home buyers that are buying a single family duplex triplex to genuinely live in. Right. Uh, and so you can kind of count on. Um, them to prop up the overall market. But in that multifamily space, it's purely a numbers game and such heavily determined by interest rates. You need to get, yeah, you need to get confidence around your numbers. You're exactly right. Even if the appraised value and it's happened, it's almost happened with me and it's happened to a handful of investors I spoke to as well in the multifamily game. 
even if their praise value comes back tremendously higher than purchase and renos and turnover cash for keys, the issue is, is that you don't, a lot of the time your LTV is capped at like, not really cap, but it is to your DCR, your debt coverage, your DSER, right? Your debt service ratio. And so a lot of the times when you're investing in these cities, like Kitchener, Waterloo, Peterborough, Oshawa, where when you refi these properties, the value of it, a lot of the time, the debt service was not enough to cover it, right? And so your yeah. LTV ends up being around 50 to 60, maybe 65% once fully done. And, and how much capital are you leaving tied in, right? Um, but that being said, this is a short-term sort of thing that we're looking at. If you're looking at five, six, seven, eight years, yeah, maybe that might not be as much of a risk, but it's just something to consider. Anyways, we're still in the market of looking at buying things, all that being said. I know I, we can come off pessimistic, but that's that's not the case. All we're saying is that we're being much more conservative, right? It's yeah. not the time to be like overly optimistic when, when underwriting these deals. Yeah. We're going to jump into today's podcast. If you guys are already investing in real estate, you're probably familiar with this name, Dave Knight. He has his own podcast as well, First Responders Wealth Network Real Estate Investing Podcast. He is a police officer who has been able to scale his real estate portfolio on the side, done a, a couple cool things from conversions, multifamily investing in Ontario, and most recently is starting to build out like a luxury sort of Airbnb in the US. Um, so we're seeing a lot of investors pivoting in the States. I would say uh, in this episode, we probably grilled down a little bit more on the, into the US side of things. So if you guys are interested in investing or expanding out there, you don't want to miss this episode out. Make sure to tune in. Hey everyone, we are joined with our very special guest, Dave Knight. Dave, how is everything going, my man? I'm good, guys. I'm good. Uh, actually, I didn't tell you before, but I just got off night shift, so I'm a little uh, a little <laughs> slow this morning. So let's get through this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Dave, uh, I guess my first time meeting you, but um, for myself and for our listeners, why don't you give us just kind of a quick background on yourself, how you got started in, in real estate and what you're up to today? For those who don't know, I'm... Uh, I'm a police officer, actually full time. I uh, invest on the side, continue to do so. Um, got a podcast as well, First Responders Wealth Network, and help some coaching and education, and just kind of share, you know, my knowledge as I and I'm learning as I go too. So I'm just sharing whatever I learn uh, and really enjoying it. And uh, yeah, I got a bunch of flips on the go right now. I actually just sold two of them recently. Market shifted, so that's always we can talk about that a little bit, but. Um, yeah, just from flips to multifamily conversions, to student rental, to single family stuff. And now investing down in the U S uh, specifically focusing in Arizona and Florida. So that's kind of me right now in a nutshell. And if you want to talk about how I got started. I can do that too. That's pretty cool. I think let's start with that. You located in the GTA, where do you invest? Um, sure. How did you, how did your first one or two properties go? Yeah. So in the Halton region is where I live. I live in Burlington. And, um, so kind of born and raised here, I invested in my own backyard when I first started, started with a couple single family homes and then, uh, you know, just learning how you can tap in your equity and not even realizing what equity was. And so it just kind of got the ball rolling that way. But yeah, I first started with uh, single family homes. I actually, I rented it out and lived at home for a couple of years cause I could barely afford furniture. So I co-signed on the deal. So, you know, I was lucky enough to get the mortgage in the first place. It was right after university. And uh, so I rented out right away. So I was technically kind of being a landlord before I even started and really knew what, what the heck I was doing. I uh, got the taste of that and then just evolved into learning about cash flow and really focusing on cash flow, which led me into student rentals. 
as I said, you're kind of learning as you go, right? So which eventually led into multifamily conversions. So really focused in the Hamilton market. So that's kind of where I really started diving my feet into like renovations and adding value to properties and adding units to, to properties in order to increase that income. And, you know, especially in today's market, I think we're doing that even more than ever is trying to find ways to increase the income. So, I mean, we can talk about that too, but uh, Hamilton's been basically my focal point up until probably maybe about 12 months or so. Then I really kind of pivoted and started learning about other areas in the U S specifically. And so where did the flipping come in? I guess in, in that timeline, I had a kind of a different agenda and goal. I thought I'd flip my way to wealth versus uh, necessarily holding properties and living on the cash flow. Um, Cause some of that cash flow would only be like, you know, two, three, 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to get a lot of properties in order to live off the cash flow. Cause all it takes is one, one leak and there goes your cash flow for a couple of years. Right. So yeah. my, my game plan at the beginning was to flip these multifamily conversions because there was a larger spread rather mm-hmm. than just the single family flips that I felt at the time. So that's really where the flipping side of things came into play. But then again, you look at what happened last couple of years and in hindsight is 2020, I guess. I wish I held on to those properties because I definitely would have made more holding onto them. So there's a lot of value in obviously the buy and hold. But um, that was my main focus of why I was actually flipping the properties because I could mm-hmm. get more um, you know, arbitrage on the, on the flip and on the exit. Um, and then also what I like about the conversion flips is if for whatever reason, it does take a, a turn, like exactly what's happening right now in the market, then I have that exit two strategy, which would be just to fill it, rent it, refinance and hold on to the property and pay back my investors. So that's very interesting that you mentioned flipping uh, conversions because a lot of investors, as you were mentioning, they would just like refi and hold it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a strategy that works, right? Like you can, you can make money that way. And with a lot of these conversion projects, if you are to refi, I found that uh, in, in cities like Hamilton, at least you're leaving a couple thousand in the property, a couple of tens of thousands. So it makes sense to exit out of it, take that money and recycle it into other projects. I'm just curious, being a first responder, working as a police officer and investing in real estate, like how do you balance all of that? Like, as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you were just literally working a night shift and now you're jumping on this podcast right now. I imagine you got calls from property managers, contractors, so on and so forth through the job. And you're probably getting calls while you're working um, full time as well. So like, what's, what's that kind of day in the life for you? Like, and how do you manage everything? I've always kept myself busy. Like even before I started in real estate, I had my own painting business and I was always like painting on my days off. You know, I was always just kind of working. I can't really just do nothing. So that side of always doing something is okay for me. It's not necessarily okay for everybody at the level that maybe they feel is too much for them. I don't have any kids. So that helps. Also, I just building a good team around me. So that's really helped. I find, you know, getting a good contractor that you can have faith in that, you know, as a property manager on site, that's dealing with multiple of your properties or the projects anyway, you know, getting property management in place for the rentals. So I'm not, you know, dealing with the tenants or picking up those phone calls. And I realize that, you know, that obviously takes a chunk of your ROI, but you know, return on investment of my time is the biggest thing for me clearly is I'm working, you know, 50 hours a week and shift work. So it's just one of those things where having those teams in place and people in place to alleviate your, you know, time on the phone and putting out fires. So, I mean, I shouldn't say that you're always putting out fires, but you're, you're putting out less fires. Yeah. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. And in terms of deal hunting, are you, uh, 
are you going out and finding those deals yourself? Because with your sort of line of profession, that's probably a bit more difficult. You're not sitting by a laptop and just browsing realtor.ca. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always downtime and you're always looking at realtor.ca, but um, one thing I never got into as much as I probably should have is direct, you know, mail and direct campaigning and, you know, all the strategies that, you know, you wholesalers do and what you guys do, you know, I've been fortunate to get some good deals from wholesalers. Um, and then also a majority of my stuff's been on, on MLS. It's probably been about 50, 50 actually. So, you know, still finding stuff on MLS, obviously the market's gone, you know, it helped me in those situations too, but just trying to buy right is uh is a big one so no matter where the deals are it's just like you're always looking you're always talking to people you kind of got your finger on the pulse of like what's happening so just trying to keep your nose into it really but yeah my my lead gen so to speak is simply just getting emails from you know people like you guys and other wholesalers and just just watching on mls and networking i'm sure half the problem i guess even if you were to like send out flyers and stuff is you'd have to answer that phone call potentially yeah, well, mid shift and, and mid while at work, which I'm, I'm sure is more challenging than someone that works a corporate yeah. job. Right. So yeah, you, you'd have to have a take this emergency call or this call from a seller. <laughs> hmm. That call can wait. <laughs> you, you started off doing, I know you said single families and I think you said you went into student rentals. Um, and then from there you kind of jumped into the conversions mm-hmm. throughout the way. Like, I guess, like what were some of the pain points that you kind of encountered? Cause I'm sure as your business grew, with the job and with everything else. Like, I'm just wondering where the pain points were. Um, I think not surrounding myself with other people that were doing it enough. Um, I was always a podcast guy. Um, so, you know, I'd always be like consuming. I think there was a lot of like analysis paralysis going on, uh, throughout my journey. And so I find it is really important now to make sure I'm surrounding myself with people that are doing bigger and better things. So it's constantly pushing me you know, to have these type of discussions and conversations at the workplace, it's very few and far between who are willing to even have the conversation literally about like your finances or investing or like anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's like almost taboo to talk about it. So, you know, it's nice to kind of surround yourself with people who are, who are doing things that you want to do. So you're constantly learning. So, so there's that aspect of it for sure. And um, yeah, just always focusing on the next thing. I do think it's a little bit weird how, maybe weird is not the right word, but like how open everyone is in the real estate community about like, Hey, like I just bought X, Y, Z. Hey, I just made whatever amount of money. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you're outside of this community, I think it comes off as, uh, you know, showing off or a bunch of other things, but definitely very cool. So then how did you get into the conversion cycle? Cause I think, uh, assuming coming from your background, like you probably didn't have too much of a construction background. A lot mm-hmm. of the individuals out there that I see doing like conversions, a lot of them are oddly engineers, which kind of makes sense as well. But um, were you using like GCs to kind of mitigate that risk? Like, how did you go about learning about that? Yeah. Um, and to add one more thing on the pain point is not taking enough initiative, like speed, like, so doing things slowly really hurt me. So I find now once you get a little more confidence, the speed of making a decision and going and doing it is a huge game changer. So I still have challenges with that. Clearly, I'm, you know, maybe we all do, but uh, anyway, that was a big one too that I want to add. Um, but uh, as far as, like how I got into the conversions and the, and the renovation side. So again, just like talking to other people who were doing it. Um, I was always taught from the beginning, like focus on cash flow. So, you know, you started looking at student rentals and then you started comparing to, oh, okay, well, if I add multiple units, you know, and then you start learning about the burst strategy, you know, so you can refinance, take your capital out, 
So it's just, it was just literally focusing on what's the next step to create more income. And that would be create more units, create more income and you know, uh, that NOI. So talking to people who are actually doing it and then figuring out, Hey, they're working too, or they're not, you know, an actual GC or swinging a hammer. So maybe I need to find a contractor who can actually do the work for me as long as I can, you know, I got my numbers dialed down. Right. So that was the biggest thing was focusing on how to underwrite uh, properties, how to really conservatively do that. And then what it took, if it made sense to get a GC to do the actual work, because I was never willing to be there swinging the hammer. Cause I honestly, I'm not a, I'm not a handy guy. Like, you know, I can do little stuff around the house kind of thing. And I used to own a painting business, but that's pretty much where it ends. Right. So I have to put my trust eventually in other people who know what they're doing. And as long as the numbers work, then that was the focus. There's beauty in simplicity. And I think our audience needs to understand that you're absolutely right. Sometimes you can get stuck on thinking of every single situation, like, Oh, I'm not actually there to do the work or monitor it, mm-hmm. but you just underwrite for these things, right? Like if you're thinking renos are going to be 60 or 70 K and yeah. you're completely outsourcing it and you're going to think you have to budget for shit hitting the fan, maybe you're going to budget 80 K 85 K. Right. Yeah. So you're screening a ton of these deals and seeing which one makes sense. Given that some of the, I would call it, it's not a disadvantage, but some of the points where you have to spend more money because it's not worth your time, you have to consider all of that in your analysis. So that that totally makes sense. Out of curiosity with the student rental model, because Mayu and I have a couple of student rentals. And honestly, it, <laughs> it was at, at first when you underwrite it, it's like super lucrative. And then mm-hmm. as you operate it, you're like, holy fuck, every single year, these students just like, trash the place right like it becomes disgusting and we spent yep. probably like eight or ten g's to clean up before we get another mm-hmm. set of students in how has your experience with student rentals been like and why don't you kind of walk us through your model a bit uh, and whereabouts like was it in hamilton i no, guess it's as well a, it's actually in welland so I, I just have the one so i only made the one purchase on the student rentals i didn't what's really it, what's the university is there a university in welland yeah it's niagara college Okay. So it's Niagara College is actually in Welland and it's just literally, you know, where I am, there's literally a row of townhouses that are all student rentals and um, they're purpose built actually. So there's two kitchens, six bedrooms uh-huh. and three full baths. So, and it's literally like a two minute walk to the front door of the college. So always in demand, which was fortunate. There was a lot of like older buildings in the area. I actually, I listened to a podcast, believe it or not. I was listening to a podcast and I heard someone come on and they were talking about scaling their student rental business. So I literally reached out to them. I got them to coach me and, you know, learn how to underwrite it properly and what to look for some markets. And they helped me locate uh Welland. Like I didn't even know like you, man, it was like, what the heck's in Welland? I don't even know. I, don't even think, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I went to school in St. Catharines, but go even going past there. wasn't really <laughs> where I was going, but uh, I just had the one, but it's been completely hands off. So I have a property manager in place whether this is a great model or not, but I literally was not there for like three years because the house was fairly new. There was very little upkeep that I had to do. Now we're we're in my sixth year now, and I have had to finally redo some stuff and just clean it up. Um, But again, everything was like maybe some new appliance, like a used appliance. I had to get in a new fridge, that kind of thing. But like the countertops are still good. The floors are still decent. Um, The painting could probably come probably any day now, Mm. but I'm actually looking to exit on that uh, student rental because going back to what you said, man, it was, it was very good at the beginning, but the problem is that the prices have gone up 
and I can't even refinance that property, a full 80% loan to value and still cash flow and feel good about it. You know, I'd probably be cash flowing like a couple hundred bucks, maybe not even, right? So it question you get to the point where it's like, yeah, it was good for its time right now. It doesn't make sense because I could rather take that capital, pay tax on it, unfortunately, um, and then pivot that into somewhere else where I can get a higher yield. Right. Yeah. But I'd yeah. argue it's the same thing in, in a lot of asset classes, Austin. Like I feel like even when we started off, um, like Windsor was like $600 for a single family house in cash flow. That's great. Right. Like yeah. that's like legit cash flow. Now we're at like, $50, like a hundred dollars on like a single yeah, family yeah. house and we're lucky. Right. And um, it doesn't, it doesn't take much to like wipe that out. You know what I exactly. mean? No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Real estate is a great wealth builder um, yeah. in this, in the single family, small multi space, but it's not, it's not going to be life-changing cash flow. Yeah. Uh, even even the large, like, <laughs> and maybe I'm wrong. Like I'm sure in the U S which I think we're going to jump to next because you dropped that on <laughs> us, but um, yeah. I'm sure in the U S the cash flow is a lot more, but here, even in like a 10 unit, 15 unit apartment building, it's not like you're seeing like crazy cash flow relative once to the you size refi, of, especially once you yeah, refi. Especially, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and relative to the overall like asset value, right? Because like sure you right. could have a furnace go out in a single family, but the repairs in apartment buildings, like I was telling Austin, or no, I was telling someone else earlier today, I've I've got a nineplex and the new roof, it's a flat roof. It's gonna cost me almost like 40 grand. I'm like, fuck. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. So, um, totally. so the bills start to get more expensive as well, right? Um, which yeah. I guess. Leading into um, something else that you said. So, so what led you down to the US? How did that transition go? Like, and it sounds like you maybe paused a little bit on your investing here and then you jumped back in and decided to go into US. So just kind of walk us through that part of your life. Yeah, I just, I think a year and a half ago, I kind of went, I mean, my version of balls of the wall, I guess. I acquired about five properties within a short period of time and, um, and they were like longer renovations. So I kind of just, did that. And then I knew that was going to be probably the next 12 months. So during that 12 months, I really focused on the U S there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, I'm actually a dual citizen, so I can move there if I want, which I eventually do. I want to, I want to go where the palm trees are and I don't want to be here for the winters and, and I'm okay coming back for the summers. But, um, so that ideally that was kind of my long-term play of like really learning about that. I know a lot of investors that have made the transition over time and, um, you know, learning more and more about the U S uh, even just going down for like conferences and that kind of stuff, you start surrounding yourself with people who are doing stuff down there. So, and it's good to expose yourself outside your own backyard. So whether it be going a couple hours down the road or literally across the border, um, you start to compare naturally. And then you start looking at like some of the lending opportunities that are down there, you know, your, your entry price into like certain areas and then your return on investment, landlord tenant rules. So like, there's tons of stuff in the residential space that I'm looking. Um, I haven't really jumped over to the, you know, apartment stuff, um, which I have learned a little bit about, but again, just haven't made that transition yet. But I think the opportunity down in the U S really excites me. They they're very like, they want you to win down there. We're here. I feel like they're kind of like pushing you down a little bit, mm -hmm. a little more red tape here. Yeah, no, for sure. I think the land tenant board, I think is ultimately, uh, it was a reason a lot of people went to Alberta. A lot of people went to New Brunswick. New Brunswick is kind of going the same way as Ontario now. And I'm sure Alberta at some point will start to convert slowly. Uh, the yeah. U.S. is definitely more favorable to the landlord, right? But I yeah. guess in your search for residential properties down there, like how is the financing looking like? What was the process? Like even just hunting from that kind of a distance, um, it's a completely different world. Like even like the, the type of like properties that they have, I'm sure in some states could be 
like it might not all be like brick and like wood and like, you know, so on and with like basements and, and that kind of stuff. Right. So I'm um, just kind of curious about those kind of pain points there. One quick thing before we get into that, you just quickly glanced over it, but you said you bought five properties in a short period of time. Was that like, I'm always curious. Is that like, how, how do people fund that? Is that like private money, JV partners, uh, rolling over your equity from your other properties? What, how did that look like? No, that was all, uh, OPM. It was all other people's money. Um, okay. other investors coming in. I shouldn't say that there was a couple where I put the down payment on and then mm-hmm. others would come in promissory notes yeah, or yeah. what have you, okay. um, with the, with the, with the private capital. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. We can jump and see uh, Mayu's question. I, I know for newer investors, they'll always have that question. A lot of yeah. experienced investors go, like, we buy a property a month and they can't like, you know, like it's, it's hard to wrap your head around how that's possible. So I just like to get some more color. The other thing too, is, you know, I was fortunate because, you know, banks like first responders and I got good credit. So it's like, I always had the ability to, to get, you know, a few conventional loans without an issue. So I definitely leveraged that. There's lots of lending out there that there's a whole nother world out there that you don't really realize, especially when you're first starting out. It's like, what do you mean B lenders or what do you mean? There's other opportunities in RBC or TD or Scotia. And so I think, uh, Learning about that kind of stuff definitely helps you acquire more properties. Cool. I guess transitioning from that back into yeah, my yeah, question yeah. on the U.S. There. <laughs> so, what does financing look like for you out in the U.S. If you're like a dual citizen, like, so I'll just kind of like do a quick synopsis. So, as Canadians down here, there are Canadian banks that allow us to invest and get mortgages down in the U.S. So, you know, your 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 major banks. You know, I think it's uh, RBC and uh, TD and. CIBC in Scotia, maybe I think those are the ones. As long as you don't have more than three mortgages, they will give you a conventional uh, loan. You can use your your um, your credit and the whole deal. And you can buy a secondary house, or you can even buy a rental property. But um, you are maxed out now. And then, so that's conventional banking. Now you can flip it over, and there's asset based lending. And this is like the world that I love down there. If a deal makes sense or a property makes sense, and depending on what it is you're doing, whether it be flipping, they can get a 90% loan to value, hundred percent of the uh, rental, which I, I think you can do here too. I have never done that, but, um, but down there, it's just so easy. It's like a seamless process, you know, to talk to someone about how many deals they've done. It's not unheard of to be like, Oh, I've done like 200 deals or hundred deals where us who like if a Canadian did hundred deals, it'd be like, okay, you got a lot of freaking experience under your belt. And usually it's a higher number as well. But, um, but yeah, so there's asset-based lending down there. And what I'm focusing on is um, short-term rentals. So that's really where we're going to be focusing on. And that's where we purchased down in Scottsdale. Um, but we did, um, we ended up in our process, we ended up doing about 80% loan to value on the purchase and then hundred percent of the rentals. And then we'll be able to refinance out that about 75% um, loan to value. So doing a little bit of a burr on a single family house and then exit with the um, short-term rental uh, for, for income and cash flow. I guess ultimately, did you end up going through a Canadian bank or did you end up using like no. an asset-based lender? So we ended up going with an asset-based lender because I have more than three mortgages currently. So I didn't qualify for that program. Oh, okay. So there's tons of asset-based lenders down there. So, I mean, there's anchor loans or certain lending. There's a few other ones that, that we have used or spoken to. And if anyone wants a, more information or contacts, definitely reach out to me. I have no problem passing that along. And so, yeah, so we used them. They did want to see, you did have to have one deal or one flip under your belt. So you did have to have one property under your belt and you actually have to own a property as well. 
in the US or or they just mean like experience? Uh, no, just like even back here. So okay. there's some lenders that recognize the stuff that you've done up here and there's some that do not. So you need to navigate through to find out which one, you know, their policies or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, that's why I use certain lending and that's why anchor loans is good as well. Um, so navigated through that and pre-qualify. So they will actually go to the property. They say like, what are you doing with the property? Um, what is your budget? They'll look, they'll appraise it. They'll look at your scope of work that you're, you're actually applying for and see if it makes sense. They'll, they'll actually fund the deal. And you can also go in and do turnkey. So there's turnkey opportunities there that um, they can look at your actual short-term income versus just your market rents. So again, you got to navigate through and figure out what it is that you want to do. Yeah. I've realized that's a lot more flexible as you were mentioning lenders in the States, especially on the short-term um, side of things. Yeah. In in uh, Canada, or at least Ontario, I would assume Canada as a whole, Ma, you can probably attest to this as well. Um, finding anything with short-term lending on side, actually telling the lender, like, I'm looking to short-term finance, like, I'm looking to get rental income via short-term rentals. Yeah. Almost not going to happen. Otherwise, you'll get like 50% loan to value. Whereas in the States, I've actually spoken to lenders down there who would go like 75% loan to value, 30-year AM. And they would take what they like air DNA data to determine what the market rents for short-term rentals are there. So it's like, there's a lot more opportunity there. Interested in digging down into the numbers and kind of the process of that single family home that you picked up. Did you find it on the MLS? How did you go about negotiating? What rentals are needed? Purchase price and like sort of income that you're looking at with this project. Yeah. So I kind of went all in on this one. Um, So this was an off-market deal. I connected with a few wholesalers down there and just kind of kept on the radar. This one came up. I knew I wanted to go to uh, Scottsdale. I know I wanted, so we actually went down a few times. Um, We were looking at some places in Florida and Arizona specifically. Um, I've connected with a few people down in in Phoenix area. So they've kind of helped me out along the way. The wholesaler got it off market uh, for 550 pretty much a new build. We're literally leaving like three walls up. So it's a completely new, completely new build. We're adding another bedroom, bathroom. It's going to end up being a four bed, two bath with a pool, hot tub, putting green, outdoor kitchen, like kind of a higher end, but not luxury, but like, you know, definitely above average for sure. Airbnb. And it's about five minutes South of old town, which is, um, you know, super, super close. And which is important because it's, it's getting pretty saturated down there. It's starting to, I shouldn't say it's starting to, it is. So you really got to stand out. Sometimes it doesn't take much to stand out from other people as well. Um, you just got to go kind of that extra couple steps and you'll do well down there still. So, so that's the focus. So we're doing about a 400 in, and then we're going to refi for about 1.1. Maybe we'll see 1.2. I don't, I think 1.2 is out of the question now, but it'll probably be about 1.1. So we'll leave some capital in there, but that's okay. That's going to be my capital and get all the systems in place. And then I'm just looking to scale it out from there all, all the way across a few states. So why Scottsdale, Arizona? Let me ask you that first. <laughs> Second, how did you even get in touch with wholesalers? How did you get them to like take you seriously? I guess just being a Canadian, like, Um, yeah, so Scottsdale was, um, the numbers. So, I mean, just looking at air DNA and mash visor is another analyzer that I like. And we look at, so the numbers are good there. There's some, 
seasonality there too, as well, obviously, but just talking to some people, seeing what the actual income that's coming in, like air DNA is very conservative for the most part, because they're only yeah, really is. analyzing VRBO and air DNA. Whereas like sometimes, you know, these guys that I'm talking to, they're doing a lot of stuff from executive rentals to insurance companies, to traveling nurses and doctors. And like, there's all this different realm that like, it's not capturing in the data. So, you know, the one down the street that I'm kind of comparing mine to, I think it was after nine or 10 months that already had 120,000 in income. So, I mean, we're talking some big numbers. I don't know the percentage of the remainder months that it would be non Airbnb data or income, but those are kind of the numbers that I was looking at that justified what we're doing down there. Yeah. So obviously a monstrous income, like probably 120 to 130, 140,000. Um, what is, what is property management look like there? Uh, obviously you're down here managing the Airbnb. I I assume you're not going to live down there anytime soon, right? Like, are you paying a company? Are you hiring people? Are you doing everything digitally? Property management majority of the time I get a little bit better, but it'll be usually about 20% is probably the the average of what you're going to pay for property management. Depending on who you go with, you can do a little bit of a mix. Like some, I know there's some companies down there. If you can pay 10%, and then you, they can do all the back end stuff. So they can do all, um, you know, you're online, you're, you're hosting. Um, you know, they're changing the data, the numbers all the time. If they come, they go. They're notifying the um, uh, the cleaners and 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 the whole team. And then you could literally to be the one that's managing the actual team. Uh, or there's a complete hands off that's usually about 20, 25 percent. Mm-hmm. And then what does insurance look like? Uh, insurance, utilities, property taxes. Like what does, what was kind of the cash flow that you calculated after running all of the numbers? Yeah. So I don't have all the numbers in front of me. I, I should have grabbed them before, before we did this, but no, no. Um, and, and to yeah, be fair, we, ne- we never gave Dave a heads up that we were going to We didn't. We didn't. Like it's just super interesting. Yeah. I literally just woke up. So um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah. So the cash on, or sorry, the, the overall return, I mean, the cash on cash, I like to keep it above uh, 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, even a 7% still solid, it's tightening up now, obviously, because the interest rates are going up and so are the, your, your private lenders and mm-hmm. your asset based lenders. But, um, but yeah, like anything over an eight or 9% cash on cash, I'm good with, I mean, I know yeah. some people like your overall return will probably be about 25, 30%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Cause I, I benchmark the same way where basically if you're getting like a seven or 8%, in a normal year, you're kind of getting the same return that the stock market would get just on your yeah. cash flow. And then your appreciation, your equity pay down is kind of on top yeah. and a hidden bonus, right? And having said that though, like, you know, I'm kind of going a nice, stable quality place that, you know, selfishly, I want to go enjoy. It's not just <laughs> about the ROI. So I want to go down there in the winters and we eventually want to move down to Arizona as well. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily in that property, but like we like Gilbert and there's a couple other areas around there that we like. Um, so that's, in the back of our mind as well. I have some buddies that are doing stuff in like Idaho that are making 50% ROI. You know what I mean? They're buying properties for like 250 grand and they're making, I forget what the income was like 60 grand or something like that on it. So, I mean, there's other opportunities out there than these hot states that everyone's gravitating towards. So if you're willing to kind of get outside like the norm, there's a lot of great opportunities of Airbnb. Yeah. And I guess Dave, in your opinion, like, I don't know what your eventual plans are, but do you think it makes sense for an individual to do one short-term rental in the U S or is there not um, enough benefit to outweigh the amount of work that would cause? Like, do you essentially have to scale or 
Is oh, no, I don't think so. No, I think there's a lot of people that have like vacation rentals and they, if, as long as you're willing to rent it out, um, I think it's a great, it's a great deal. It's like, this is the part about real estate that I love. Like, I just don't look at just, you know, getting the highest ROI or, you know, dollars at the end of the year. Like I want to, I, I, my mindset is like, I want it to affect my life. Like, how is it going to benefit me? Like, can I go travel there? So getting a few in the States, getting like, we're even, we have some partners in Tulum and Mexico right now that we're actually going to go there in a couple nice. months. And we're actually going to do a mastermind down there. They're way ahead of me, but I'm kind of drafting off them and I'm going to pull some Canadians down with me and like the, the return on investment there is great too. Plus you, you know, you're in Mexico, Costa Rica and all across the world and over in Europe, like there's tons of opportunities. So, um, as long as you're willing to, to rent it out, it doesn't take a lot of work. I think getting the, the right property management is, is important. Uh, getting the right financing is important and then doing your numbers and making sure it makes sense. Yeah. So, so very much like investing long distance in Canada, right? Like if you're investing yeah. in another province, the only top part, as you mentioned, is just understanding the financing aspects yeah. of the changes in that. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you can get the ball rolling. The one thing I do want to add to is this asset based lending. Like I make it sound so easy, but you have to dig in and everyone's situation is different, but they do make you have your own uh, corporate entity. So down there they call, this is no advice le- or legal or accounting mm-hmm. advice. This is just what my personal situation was, was um, you know, like down there, everyone talks about LLC. So I had to get a U.S. corp. Everything will be under the corp. So you have to have an actual entity in place in order to get this uh, funding. They won't just fund you personally. They'll qualify you personally in the experience that you've done, but you have to actually have it in, in an entity. So just little, little info there too. And did you find there was a lot of like brokers, I guess, down there that were knowledgeable about like Canadian and, and non-resident like financing or was um, it more so a niche topic? Like understanding how we are up here? No, understanding, or, or yeah, versa. understanding what you would need to buy a property down there. They, they know what, what anyone needs to, to get financing down there. It's, a, it's the idea that like, we're so used to what we need up here that it takes a little bit of a learning curve to like figure out this is what they need. These are the terminologies that they use for like escrow and, you know, title companies and like all this other like terminology. That's, it's all the similar stuff. It's just a little bit different, but mm-hmm. um, I think connecting with, with somebody who understands that transition is definitely important. So like having a good CPA and even a lawyer to make sure that you're set up properly. So you're not getting double taxed is a, uh, is a big one. Yeah. I think it's cross-border taxation is a topic on its own, but awesome, Dave. I, I think that was a great topic. I think, you know, I don't think myself or Austin expected to be talking about us real estate. So we appreciate you <laughs> breaking it down for us in the That's level cool. of detail that you did for sure, man. Um, usually at this point in the podcast, we like to ask our guests two questions. So the first question is, um, where do you see yourself five years from now? Five years from now? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not working shift work. I know that. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I hope so. If I listen to this five years, I better be. Um, but I just, uh, five years, somewhere there's palm trees and we living in down the U S hopefully, uh, continuing investing and whether it be part-time or full-time, definitely want to make that transition and continuing to work. And I have a real passion for like helping my own community of first responders. And, you know, I'm definitely no guru, but I like to share the information that I've learned so I can benefit them and get them hopefully uh, in a better situation. So definitely continue doing what I'm doing now, but just be in a better, more secure spot and a little bit warmer weather. 
Perfect. And so I guess for a newer investor in today's market, what I guess is the biggest risk or the best piece of advice that you can give them? Um, I think just stick to the fundamentals. Um, you know, chase cash flow. Don't don't chase appreciation. That's a big one. Um, really focus on analyzing properties. I think if you focus on that and not get distracted from the nice countertops or, I mean, the area is important. Don't get me wrong, but I think just really not getting emotional about the process. Awesome. Really appreciate you jumping on Dave. I'm just on your website right now, taking a look through it. So I see that you do have uh, some, some content out there. If people want to follow you, you obviously have your um, podcast as well. The first responders wealth network, um, what you're doing for your own community. And I guess the real estate community as a whole is absolutely amazing. It's all about sharing information and each one of us have our own network, right? So it's good that you're sharing information with your network and helping them get um, their finances straight and build wealth for the future. If anyone wants to reach out to you uh, or contact you, um, how could they do so? Yeah. So they can go to 911wealthnetwork.com and you can find everything on there. Uh, Instagram is Dave Niter, So D-A-V-E-K-N-I-G-H-T-E-R or yeah, I think those are the two probably best uh, avenues there. Awesome. So all of the links will be down in the show notes below. And until next time, everybody invest smarter and live better. Take care all.